Welcome to the Learning Capacity Podcast. You're with Colin Klupik. In this interview with neuroscientist Dr. Martha Burns, we discuss the connection between reading and listening and the capacity to learn. We also talk about the effects of talking to young children from a very early age and how that affects language and literacy skills later in life. Indeed, some very compelling thoughts to consider. You mentioned that reading uh, or skills in reading helps skills in listening. And I was interested in the proportions that you talked about in the, in the classroom situation. You said that most classroom situations are 80% teachers talking and 20% children listening. Yes. Can you expand on the relationship between listening skills and reading? That's, that's a very good question. Um, it was Stanislas Dehen's research that was published in the journal Science in 2010, where he showed that, I think it was 2010, but he showed that when you teach Brazilians who are illiterate, who have not learned Portuguese, not learned to read Portuguese to read, or when you look, compare literate um, speakers of Portuguese with non-literate speakers of Portuguese, one of the big differences is listening skills, that they follow directions better, they're much better able to handle auditory information, and that's kind of surprising. And he especially said it was in the phonological area, so that their phonological processing improves. So it's kind of cyclical, isn't it, that if you have poor phonological processing, you often have problems learning to read, which in turn, if you have problems to read, seems to keep you from developing phonological mm. processing skills. Um, but, but I think the importance about that is that they build on each other. Reading and auditory and listening skills build on each other. And there is research showing 80% of instruction in classrooms, in elementary school classrooms, is teacher talking, students listening. So building auditory listening skills, whether you build them through reading if you can, but build them aside from reading, even if, even if you have a child who's struggling to read, if you can build their language skills, then you're giving them the opportunity to learn in a classroom better. If then on top of that you can get them reading better, you enhance it even further. One of the experiences that I've had in the classroom is that most kids hate reading. And so if the, if the kids say to me, oh, I don't like reading, then, and, and then I keep saying to them, why are you having problems listening? I'm wondering, do we have a, like a spiraling problem here? How do, how do we intervene there? It is a spiraling problem, and I think that's what teachers discover, is that children who are having trouble learning to read don't like to read, so they don't read. And they also start not doing well in school, um, for a variety of reasons. They may have started with the phonological problem to start with, so they're not good listeners in the beginning, and then they're not reading and building that. Plus, teachers enjoy working with students who like to learn. Mm. And when a student's struggling, teachers get frustrated, just like the students get frustrated. And it does become spiraling, so the gap increases over time. So children who start off, uh, again, my wonderful professor Doris Johnson used to say, when a child is dyslexic, not only are they having trouble reading, their IQ will actually decline over time. The ability of them to benefit from education in general decreases. They can't learn from reading, and now we know they have more trouble listening in the classroom. So it is it cascades, and a child might be a year behind in year one and might be seven, eight, nine years behind later on. So do we just get teachers to talk less? 
Well, we have, I would say rather than have teachers talk less, since so much teaching is just innately teachers talking, um, would be to improve the listening skills of children, to get to augment and give them more exercises that really build their capacity to listen well. Because I'm afraid if we go away from teachers talking to to more multimedia kinds of things, we're actually going to decrease listening skills even mm. further. Well, we're going to talk about that in a moment, but um, I was kind of hoping that you'd say we could just talk less. <laughs> <laughs> For people who don't like to listen, I think that would be a nice solution. <laughs> and uh, can you elaborate a little bit more on this concept of, uh, and I think this is related, of building the brain rather than just remembering delivered content? I, I think you were saying that as teachers, we're not just or delivering content is actually secondary to, to building the brain's capacity. Yes, I think that's some of the exciting research that's going on in neuroscience is discovering that educators don't just impart content, but they actually are building the capacity to solve problems. They're building the capacity to um, reason. Is it a case where the parents of the higher socioeconomic groups actually know that they're speaking more words to, this, to their children or, or do they know that they need to speak more words to their children or do they just inherently do that? That's really an excellent question because the one question that wasn't answered by the Hart and Ridsley research, and that was the research on how different parents talk to their children, um, doesn't, doesn't answer the question of why do parents in higher socioeconomic environments tend to talk more. I suspect it's probably fourfold. I, I suspect that part of it is that they were spoken to as children, so they're modeling the way their parents parented. So it gets to be kind of a, a, way, a cultural difference in the way mm. children are raised. Secondly, I think that parents who have more money are under less stress, and they have the luxury of sitting around and talking. Whereas I think parents who are below the poverty line or struggling to make ends meet often have two jobs. They come home, they're exhausted. They have laundry to do. They have the house to clean. They have groceries to buy. They have bills to pay. And they just don't have that same luxury of, oh, let's sit down and talk about things mm. and let's play a game together. They're just trying to get through the day. I think there's also the other issue of the more educated you are, the more words are part of your life. You've been going to school, you've been reading a lot. So talking is something that is part of what you've been exposed to, part of what you do. You like to read, you like to talk about what you read, you like to discuss things. I think in families where there hasn't been a lot of education, talking is not the way they communicate. They, they like to listen to music or they might like to sit down and watch television. Um, and then finally, I think it is... It may have to do with how many parents are in the home. If, if you are below the poverty line, you're more likely to be a single parent. And single parents, I think, are working much harder both to earn the living and to raise the children. If you have two parents in the home, oftentimes one of them might have the time to sit down and talk with a child. So I think there are four factors at least that might contribute to the differences that mm. we see. I can imagine that issue of single parenting must be a very sensitive issue as well across a broad number of, of groups. I mean, anyone who would be a single parent would, would feel very sensitive to that issue. Is, is there a way that we can encourage people to recognize that and turn that around? 
Possibly. Uh, there's a woman who's um, been talking, Alison Gottnick is a um, professor at Berkeley, a researcher, who's talked about the fact that in all the other cultures and in other times, humans did what she called allo parenting. So if a parent was very busy, if a mother was part of a tribe or a father was part of a tribe and they had a hundred thousand things to do, grandparents actually, or parents within the organization or community would take on the parenting role. And I think that, that maybe we can do that. We could help parents be more sensitive. If you're a single parent, recognizing the pressure you're under, recognizing how hard it is, and providing community resources so that we can have allo parenting so that you could have some place to take your child and not perhaps a daycare center all the time, but just maybe mm. take them to a community, a woman in the community who loves children and loves to play with them and loves to talk to them and give the single parent time to just relax and decompress and then have someone who really likes being with children um, be with the children and do that kind of stimulation. We've We've just gotten away from using grandparents and using aunts and uncles and extended families to help us. So maybe we could find community ways to do it. You've been listening to the Learning Capacity Podcast, brought to you by LearnFast Australia.